welcome to the Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller podcast. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is the rookie. He's too short to be a detective. It's Chris Dashu. When did I go from detective to rookie? That's not fair. I don't even identify with Levitt. Come on. In this, in these stand of episodes, it's clear who I would identify with. Consistently fish, always. It's I'm the happiest for the first time in 40 years, and it's illegal. And we have a special guest on this episode. It is Otto Bruno, the author of an upcoming book all about Barney Miller. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Do we have a, a specific name for the book picked out already? The name of the book is Barney Miller and the Files of the Old One Two. That's a good name. That's a good name. Might have to change our podcast. <laughs> yeah, right? I am just chomping at the bit to talk to you guys because I've been listening to this podcast. And I have to tell you, I was kind of shocked when I first listened to it because I saw that there was this podcast. I think, Mike, I saw you on Facebook, right? Is that how I learned about the podcast? I think so. And so I said, oh, my God, I got to check this out. So I'm listening to it. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking, wait a minute, these guys... I've never seen the show before. <laughs> Although I think Mike did see it before. Mike has. Yeah, but yeah. Chris is totally, like you said, is totally a rookie to the show. Oh, yeah. And so on that point of view, it was interesting because, you know, you've heard of the omniscient narrator. I'm kind of like the omniscient listener because you're talking about things that I already know all the answers to. And you're asking, like, why is this happening and why aren't they doing this and all of that? So I'm listening to that part. And then, of course, the other thing, which I'm a little used to, because, as I mentioned before we got on the air, that I have children of my own. I'm also listening to, of course, how younger people are viewing this program, which, you know, is much different than how I'm looking at it, because I grew up in a very different time. So so it's kind of interesting, but I've enjoyed listening to you guys, and, and I'm very happy to be here. Have you found yourself yelling at your speaker going, come on, it's this, it's this thing. Opinions are just the fucking worst. Originally, yes. But as I said, I like this guy, I like you already. Honesty is exactly what we want. Originally, I, I was doing that. And then as time went on, well, then, of course, after we made the appointment to do the show, then I said, that's OK, I'll straighten them out. When I <laughs> I'll straighten them out. <laughs> What have we been the most wrong about? Well, again, you haven't been wrong about anything. You've been... Oh, you hear that? We've been right the whole time. You've been... Well, you've... I mean, you know, you're talking about things like, for example, I know Chris is very upset at the lack of utilization of Barbara Barry, for example. Yes, Chris sure is. Okay. Now, here's the story with the Barbara Barry character. You called this podcast The Life and Times of Barney Miller, which was the name of the original pilot. There were two pilots done, as you know. The initial idea for the program was going to be showing us Barney's work life and showing us Barney's home life and, you know, kind of comparing that. Well, now, the first pilot, again, you guys have kind of gone over this, but the first pilot, the network passed on. They didn't. They weren't interested in it. What happened, how Danny Arnold, who was the creator and the showrunner for this program, how he got control of that is a little murky. 
Hal Linden told me, and, and Danny's sons confirmed this for me, that, that basically the network turned it down. Danny kind of kept on them. And what Danny did was he apparently mortgaged his home and bought out the deficit financers. So what he did was he bought out some of the money people so that he ended up owning like 75% of the show because originally he had 25% Flickr, Ted Flickr, who was the other co-creator, had 25% and the, the money people had 50%. So what Lyndon said is that he bought out the money people. He had control. Once he had control, he said to Flickr, don't bother coming in anymore. I'm going to do it on my own. So he, yeah, so he then took control and then he, for lack of a better word, we don't really know the truth, but he kind of badgered the network and, and got them to give him an order for two more episodes. And when people have asked, when people asked him, I only, I only ever heard two interviews with Danny Arnold. And when they asked him, what do you mean two? He says, well, it was, you know, it was two with the option for 11 more for a half a season, which, as you know, is what the first season was, was a half season, 30 episodes. So they reshot the pilot. And of course, when they reshot the pilot, the only people that were still available were Hal Linden and Abe Vigoda. The other people, the guy who played Kaczynski, who was the precursor to Wojo's character, was Charles Hayde, right. He was in New York directing a play at the time. And he did not want to come back for a pilot that had already been turned down once. So he passed and they brought in Max Gale, who Danny, I think, had seen on a couple of episodic detective shows. And as you know, in the original pilot, Val Basolio was an Italian cop who was essentially Nick Yamana character. And the, the, I heard you guys once talking about, well, I wonder why they didn't bring Basolio back. Cause somebody, was it you, Mike, who said, Oh, I always liked him. I did too. I always loved Val Basolio. From what Hal Linden told me at the time, like right before they were going to shoot the pilot again, Basolio had a part in a movie called Linda Lovelace for President. Oh, nice. Did some interviews about that movie, yeah. Right. Well, Linda Lovelace, you know, it wasn't a porno film, but it was basically just a campy film to kind of take advantage of the Linda Lovelace name at that point in time. Right. A very, very unfunny comedy. Right. <laughs> right. But but Lyndon said that he, he felt pretty strongly that it was the network who was uncomfortable with the connection of being, you know, of him working with this porn star. So they didn't bring Solio back. And and Jack Sue was actually the only guy there who, well, I take that back. I think he knew Gregory, too, but was the only guy who was had a previous relationship with Danny Arnold. They went all the way back to the late 40s and early 50s together. They worked comedy clubs together. So they had a longstanding relationship. Well, Barbara Barry also, she replaced Abby Dalton, I think it was. So they did that first show that Chris liked so much with Barbara Barry. And almost immediately, the network said, and so did, by the way, Variety. They all, they all commented on how well 
the station house stuff worked mm. and they felt that the home stuff was just kind of typical domestic comedy stuff. And they didn't want that. So like literally almost before they even got started, the, the network was not interested in the domestic aspect of the storyline. So what happens now is, and again, Chris points this out, they're looking for excuses to bring her into the precinct. She's bringing him lunch. She's, you know, out on call and happens to be near the precinct. It's all very ham-fisted and it's all very intentional, like you said. Right. So they didn't, they had nothing to do. And now you will find interesting and probably frustrating, Chris, is that Barbara Barry and I don't know, have you got to the episode yet where she's the social worker? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was early in season two. We're at the point now where we will not see Barbara Barry again for, I believe, several seasons. Yeah, and I think you'll only see her once or twice again now from here on out. You know, you kept asking in some of those early podcasts that I was listening to, why is she in the opening credits? Well, she had a contract and she was, you know, top build star in the show. So they had to keep putting her in there, even though. Now, the other thing you have to know is Danny Arnold, the creator of the show, was real maverick. And he totally did not give a shit what anybody at the network thought. In fact, I got the feeling that if Danny could make the show funny and piss off the network people, it was a double bonus for him. And try to find out reasons to bring her in. She suggested that Elizabeth get a job. And she said, you know, have her either work in a hospital or something so that their work might be similar and might interact at some point. She said, we did the social worker episode. She goes, and it was just clear Danny just didn't want to, didn't want to put the effort towards building up that kind of a storyline. One of the criticisms, if you, if you want to make, which is funny, it's a criticism I never considered until I started writing this book is that I had a couple people say, well, it's really a man's show. Because, of course, throughout the seasons of the program, three different times they try to bring a female detective in, and it never lasts. And I know another one of Chris's pet peeves is Linda Lavin not staying. And I agree, by the way, with you on that one, that the chemistry between she and Max Gale was great. I thought that worked very, very well. This is a point that I was never able to get confirmed because she was one of the very few people that didn't want to talk to me or she said she was going to talk to me and then we had it practically all set up and then she kind of set up two more roadblocks that seemed unnecessary to me. Like she wanted me to start all over again and go through somebody different, even though we almost had it like completely set up. So I just kind of got, because I was near the end and I just said, forget it. Cause I've been trying to get her for a couple of years. And I just said, it's, it's not worth it if she's going to make it that difficult. But somebody suggested, I, I don't know if it was Hal Linden or I don't think it was Linden. I think it might've been Tony Sheehan, who was one of the producers eventually suggested that they think she was probably like, she was trying to redo her contract with Danny and he was waiting too long to commit to signing her for another season. And then she got the offer for Alan. 
So he just missed the boat. Right. Exactly. And once she got that offer, well, obviously you're going to take a show where you're the star instead of just being a supporting player. So that's what happened. That's why she didn't stay. Did you get the sense with who you've talked to that Linda Lavin could have had a bigger part in this show if that had gone through? I got the sense that, yes, at that point, she probably could have. Like a Landsberg? Yes, right. Interesting. Danny, Danny was so, this is the thing I got from people over and over and over again about Danny. One, he was a perfectionist. But two, he was a procrastinator. In that case, his procrastination obviously hurt, hurt it. What's interesting is the perfectionism and the procrastination led to the fact that Barney Miller became very famous in Hollywood at the time for being the show that filmed longer into the night than any other sitcom of the time. They regularly were shooting until two, three, four o'clock in the morning because it got to a point eventually where they would come in on Monday morning. And again, I had this confirmed by numerous people. They would come in on Monday morning and they might have the first scene written. Sometimes they would only have page, you know, an idea, a story idea. And then they wrote it as they went along during the week and they would be shooting and they would get a different idea. And Danny would say, okay, we'll be right back. And the cast would be sitting waiting for the writers upstairs to write the next scene. Oh, my. It's really surprising how well this show has turned out, isn't it? Right. And he, and as Hal Linden said, he says, you know, Danny always used to say, I don't care the cost or the time. I just want to do the best show we can do. And he said, he goes, you know, he was paying golden time, double, double golden time by that time for the crew you know, who are there on a 20-hour day. <laughs> so he was paying a lot of money. but And this was this happened routinely. Another question I heard you ask in one of the, maybe more than one of the podcast episodes, was when they stopped filming before a live studio audience. This is another big bone of contention. The first person I ever met who had worked on Barney Miller, and this was before I even thought of writing the book, was a guy named Ken Tiger, who is the guy who plays Mr. Kopechny in the Werewolf episode. And he ends up doing, I think, six episodes altogether. And when I met him, he told me, I asked him that question the very first time I met him. I said, when did they, I said, I know at some point they stopped. I know they started with the studio honors. He said, from when, me, from when I was doing episodes, he said, it seems to me that, uh, he says, the werewolf episode, for example, we shot the first half in front of the live studio audience. And then we did the second half, but it really was not, it was not what we, the second half that they shot was not what was used. And they went back and rewrote it. And then Tony Sheehan later confirmed to me, he says, oh, no, I know for a fact that it was sometime in the middle of the third season that we stopped using the audience. Well, now both Hal and Max say, no, 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 it was much, much earlier than that. Uh, it was the first season. I tend to believe Tony Sheehan because he was the most involved with Danny. 
And I think that probably what Max Gale and Hal Linden are thinking about, which happened all the time as well, from what I was told, is that even when they were shooting in front of a live studio audience, because of the habit he got into rewriting stuff, you know, normal shows will shoot the show and then let the audience go and then come back and do pickups, you know, close-ups and stuff like that. But he, <laughs> when they came back and did pickups, they did complete scenes. So I think that's probably what they're thinking about. So it's missing sometimes just because they had to redo the scene. Exactly. Like, and, and, you know, I had the same issue. I heard, I was just listening the other day to you guys talking about the first season episode courtesans. And you were saying how the jokes fell flat. And I wrote in the book, I'm like, I don't know what they did. And I don't understand why that episode is like that, why they didn't sweeten it up, because I know they were sweetening all along. And and so you heard some sweetening in that episode and some where Chris was saying it was just crickets, you know, there was nothing happening. So I don't know what happened. The other thing, because I, I listened to some of when you guys were talking about first season episodes, I was listening to those this week. You must remember in the first season, because again, they weren't sure if it was going to even be picked up. Danny did pretty much everything by himself in those first 13 episodes. He did have a guy named Chris Hayward who was helping him. And Chris Hayward, you may see his name much like Get Smart. If you've ever seen the old show, Get Smart, he wrote on that show. He wrote on a bunch of other shows. Chris Hayward was a friend of Danny's. So they were contemporaries and they knew each other. And he helped out. There was another guy whose name you don't see in the first few seasons, but he was apparently there advising Danny and his name was Roland Kibbe. And he also was an old writing friend of Danny's. They had met on the old Tennessee Ernie Ford <laughs> variety show in the 1950s. So he had some people, but for the most part, he was really doing everything by himself in that first season in particular, because Tony Sheehan and I think Reinhold, Ouija, both came in sometime during season two. And they were both young kids. I mean, Tony Sheehan, it was quite literally, I think, his first job out of college. And he ended up becoming Danny's most important person because at the end of season five, Danny has to leave to have bypass surgery. And he he calls Sheehan into the office and says, do you think you can handle the show on your own? I have the doctors making me step away for a while. And he said, Sheehan said to Danny, he's like, sure, Danny. He says, Reinie, Reinhold Ouija, Reinie and I can handle it. And he's like, no, Reinhold's leaving too. He got a job. He got a development deal with Warner Brothers. So you're going to be on your own. <laughs> and Sheehan, Sheehan said to him, sure, I can do it. He says, then I walked out and thought to myself, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And he says, all of a sudden I realized, well, I don't know anything, so I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to do what I can do. <laughs> so he ran the show for seasons six and seven. And then Danny comes back for the last season in season eight. You know, Otto, the question that I have, and I know that's the one that's on Mike's mind too. Where is Mike? What happened to Mike? Why does Mike not come back, Otto? We have to have this question answered by the man who knows the most about Barney Miller. Is there a story behind that Mike character? Is there anything? 
there are other cops who come and go and we never see them again. And I, again, I do write about this in the book, the people that, that we see momentarily and they disappear. There is an episode somewhere where they mentioned guys who had gotten laid off. And I think I thought his name was one of them because remember you also talked about Rod Perry, who was, who was in the first couple too. And he disappeared. Perry, I think Max Gale was the one. Perry, he, he told me that Perry either left and was doing a play or a different show or a movie or something. You were talking one podcast episode I listened to where you were talking about the one episode where we go inside Fish's home. That's the first Landsberg episode, isn't it? Well, first Landsberg right, right, as yeah, Dietrich. Yeah, Landsberg as Dietrich, yeah. Right. And there was a different Bernice. And that's because Florence Stanley was co-starring in her own sitcom at the time called Joe and Sons with Richard, the guy who played Clemenza in The Godfather, Richard Castellano. And that show only lasted like nine episodes. But when they shot that episode in Fish's home, Florence Stanley was doing that other show. So they brought in Doris Bellick to play to play Bernice. That show, and I think one of you even said it in there, you're like, well, this couldn't possibly have been the Fish spinoff because it was too soon because he stays for another year. Well, you were right. It was supposed to be. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) Yes. It was supposed to be the Fish spinoff. But again, the network didn't like it. They didn't, they didn't, they just didn't like anything. And, you know, it's too bad. What I could never quite make out was apparently they it sounded like they were going to have Dietrich's character in the spinoff but I'm thinking okay so then was he going to do double duty or was he just you know how is that going to work out the woman who plays Fish's daughter in that Emily Levine I think that was her name Emily Levine she was in an improv group called the New York Stickball Company with Steve Landisberg. She and Landisberg were f- friends forever. So they were very close. So I don't know if he got her that part or or what. So that's why he was in there so long. And then he, you don't see him for a while because they didn't really know what to do with him yet. And Fish was still there because he ultimately he replaces Fish. Chris, I think I heard you, you guys were talking about Batista, Detective Batista, the other female cop. That actress's name is June Gable. She was one of the very first people I spoke with. And she said that Danny Arnold had seen her in New York in the Broadway play The Ritz. And she had replaced Rita Moreno playing the part, you know, of a Latina in this this play. So he hires her thinking she was a Latina and, and, you know, she was actually Latin. And so when they get to the very first show, he says to her, well, here you get, you get angry and just throw in some Spanish, you know, stuff. And she says, okay. She says, well, you'll have to write it out for me or you'll have to give me a tutor or something. And he looks at her and he's like, what do you mean? He says, you speak <laughs> Spanish, right? She says, no. He says, aren't you Puerto Rican? And she says, no. She says, my people are Eastern Europeans. Oh, man. He says, but you were playing that part. She's like, yeah, but 
She says, I just learned the part. I wasn't not Hispanic at all. So at the time, there was a group. I mean, people, we think it's just happening now, but this was 50 years ago. There was a group, I think she said the name of it was Ola, and I can't remember what it stands for now. But basically, it was a group complaining about non-Latins playing Latin parts. What a great name for a group, by the way. Because probably like the L and the A of Ola probably stand for Latin Americans. Right. <laughs> only Latin Americans. Right. I bet that's what it stands for. Hire only Latin Americans. There you go. Oh, that's right. The H is silent. Yeah. So, so he had to let her go because he was getting pressured from people when they found out she wasn't Spanish. So he had to let her go. And here we thought Hank Azaria playing Apu was, you know, controversial. <laughs> right. The height of disrespect. And by the way, Danny had a thing, apparently. He thought that he loved the comedic value of someone getting upset and angry in a foreign Gregory language. Gregory Sierra. Couldn't, could not tell. Exactly. Gregory Sierra. And you guys were saying, gee, why didn't he? He only stayed for two years. The, the intel I got, and I... I feel somewhat safe about this, but I didn't get it confirmed by enough people to make me really comfortable, but certainly has a ring of truth. If you remember, Gregory Sierra was on Sanford and Son first. Supposedly, I think it was Hal who said, I'm pretty sure what happened was ABC offered him like a development deal and saying that they would get him his own show. So he came over to ABC, but when they, he got to ABC, they didn't have anything for him yet. So they said to him, go into this show and we'll develop something for you. Which they did. Which they did. But he was, so he was, when he first went on to Barney, he thought he was going to get his own show, it sounds like. And then Danny, as we say, had this penchant for the, for the, the Latin, you know, going off, getting angry, and started speaking Spanish. And he wanted him to do that every once in a while. And Sierra didn't like doing that because Sierra wanted to get away from only playing Puerto Rican characters. In fact, that's why when he did AES Hudson Street, I think they made him only half Spanish because I remember his name in that was Dr. Menzies, M-E-N-Z-I-E-S. Can't remember what his first name was. And that show, by the way, I remember it. I thought it was kind of funny, and it only lasted six episodes. But that was the deal with why Sierra didn't stay around too long. Plus, by the way, at the end when Sierra was leaving and then they were going to get him his own show, he was going through some personal issues. His ex-wife committed suicide at the time. And so he was having some real personal issues at home. And I, I just think he was looking to just step away for a while. Well, we have brought you here to discuss three stories from season three, episodes 10, 11, and 12 of season three, Christmas Story, which aired originally December 23rd, 1976, very appropriate, Hash, which aired December 30th, 1976, and Smog Alert, which came out January 6th, 1977. And I think that 
if people have seen one episode of Barney Miller, they have probably seen Hash, because it is the one that just tore the roof off the place, and my god, I was laughing my ass off last night re-watching this one, because, and I, I hadn't seen it in years and years, but let's talk about Christmas Story first. You mentioned Reinhold Ouija and Tony Sheehan. They are the writers on this. This is another Bruce Bilson-directed episode. We talked last time that Bruce Bilson really uh, showed up for season three and just directed a ton of episodes. And, Chris, you know what I'm going to say. It's Luger! 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 In his red suit! And he's got his bottle of liquor. Now, Chris, I know, is not crazy about Inspector Luger. No, no, he's come around. Come ar- he's come around. I, I've come around. <laughs> I, have, I have greatly come around on our friend Inspector Luger. Luger is exactly what he's supposed to be. He is supposed to represent the old-style cop that Barney does not want to be and doesn't want his men to be anymore. As the series go on, <laughs> You will see, in fact, there's one episode, I can't remember if it's in season seven or eight, where there is a major confrontation between Barney and Luger over that, over Luger's antiquated ideas about how a cop is supposed to do his job. So he is there, you know, very much for for that purpose, to represent the old guard, basically, And he's a nice bookend. You know, Wojo and Barney have the father-son relationship. And and Luger and Barney, Luger has a father-son relationship with Barney. You know, Barney is, is very respectful to him, but I don't think Barney looks up to him in the way that Wojo looks up to Barney. But Luger and Luger talking about, you know, Brownie and, and, you know, the whole gang. It's I, I, I find Luger very funny. And by the way, he was without any question the most accredited actor coming into this program because all the people in this program before Luger, before uh, James Gregory, none of them were, were known entities, really. They were all either at the beginning, I mean, really next to to James Gregory at that time, probably the guy who had been most busy on television might have been Gregory Sierra. Hal Linden was, you know, was just coming off Tony Award for the Rothschilds on Broadway, but he had done some, you know, maybe three or four different failed pilots. Max Gale had done some episodic stuff on things like Streets of San Francisco and Canon and stuff like that. Ron Carey was unknown. Dietrich was unknown. Ron Glass had started. Ron Glass was favorite of Norman Lear and had done a few things for Norman Lear on All in the Family and I think Good Times. And I don't know if he might have even appeared on Maud, maybe, too. But no, it was really James Gregory who, who had had the most experience on not only television, but in films, too. He had been in some big films. Manchurian Candidate. Katie Elder. Well, he's in one of the Planet of the Apes Planet films. of the Apes, yeah, exactly. Flight of the Dragons. That one I'm not familiar with. 
<laughs> that's a Rankin and Bass. That's a crossover. That's a Rankin and Bass crossover. Yeah. I was going to call you out as being an absolute liar, but then I'm looking up uh, Abe Vigoda and I'm just like, holy shit, he had some stuff in the beginning. But then did he go to like Broadway or something? Because obviously he was in The Godfather's Tessio. Yeah. But really, before 1972, even before like, say, 69 because he had a couple credits in dark shadows right but before that it was like barely anything where was he before that his family barely knew who he was okay he yes he had done primarily theater work and that was basically what he did i I don't know if it was because because some of the things like the one thing i know that he did in the 50s was a jimmy durante some appearance with jimmy durante on, on one of the variety shows But keep in mind that in the 50s, those things were being shot in New York. So I don't know if it was a reluctance maybe to uproot his family at that point in time or what. But yeah, he did mostly theater work and he was a total unknown entity until until Tessio in The God. Yeah. So which is amazing given how important that role ends up being in that movie. Right. Right. Like it's one of the, I mean, that movie has a lot of roles, but that role is so memorable. The most incredible face. He just looks like Boris Karloff, right? Have you, have you gotten to that episode yet? No. There is an episode coming up for you where Daryl Driscoll says to him, has anyone ever told you you look like Boris Karloff? And what's funny is his friend, Abe Vigoda's friend and publicist, a guy named, I think his name is Michael Druxman, said to me that he felt in the post-Barney Miller years, the best role that Vigoda got was in a uh, revival on Broadway, Arsenic and Old Lace, plays Jonathan. That was the Karloff role, yeah. And I remember in the radio version of that, it's actually Karloff doing it, and he's just like, they said I looked like Boris Karloff. (laughs) That was the joke. And then again, of course, in the the film version, they couldn't get Karloff because it was a different studio and they wouldn't let him go. And then they, they don't use his name then. They just they just say, oh, that terrible monster picture, that person in the monster picture. Wojo is the one that takes Christmas the most seriously. And he is just so into it. And he's like, he's like the kid, you know, that you're talking about that father or something. Right. He's the kid who's just like, Christmas is supposed to be this. You know, he gets so upset when Yamana comes in with this blue tree. I thought for sure Yamana was going to be like, oh, it's a br- blue spruce. <laughs> <laughs> they charge me extra for it. <laughs> this Christmas story has one of my, I would definitely put it in my top 10 greatest lines in Barney Miller history. I still laugh out loud. I laughed out loud today when I saw, it. and that's when, as you're saying, they, you know, the running gag is that I thought we said we weren't going to exchange gifts and, and Wojo comes in with the gifts and then Harris goes out and buys yeah. a bunch of gifts. And Wojo says to him, uh, you know, you didn't have to get me a gift. That's not why. He's like, that's not why I did it. He goes, yes, it is. He's like, no, it isn't. And he said, yeah, it is. And he, Harris says, Merry Christmas, will you? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's so angry. He's like, just just Merry Christmas. Will you take something? I mean, it's so it's so ridiculously Christmassy, you know, no spirit, which of course then 
you know, fish is the is the resident Scrooge, which is only right. And the whole thing with with Yamana, I liked the poignant poignancy of the line where he says, "It's nice to be with your own holiday." Oh, that is so good. Because of course, the other famous thing about Barney Miller that I'm sure you've you've already figured out, and I don't remember if you guys have talked about it, but other than Barney, no one has any roots or family. In fact, Hal Linden said to me, he's like, you know, every once in a while, someone would try to send in a script saying, oh, Barney's brother from Buffalo comes in or whatever. And they always said, no, no, we don't want, that's a domestic storyline. We don't want that. We want, keep it in, keep it. And again, you guys have talked about this. I know is in some ways, I guess, a claustrophobic show because most of what goes on goes on in those two rooms. I was reading something that's very funny, and I don't know, Otto, how you feel about this. Barney Miller is also a show that barely has any copping in it, like actually policing, actual police work. It's all like very it's all very what I think stereotypically we as non-police assume. They rarely pull their guns. They're never they're not very often speaking in cop lingo other than callers and Johns even. But this is a cop show about cops where they don't do any policing. Well, I'll tell you what originally, well, for me, it's originally what I think finally convinced me to to write a book about it. And that was, do you guys remember, oh, what's his name? Dennis Farina. Do you remember the actor Dennis Farina? Oh, God, yeah. I remember. Right, okay. (laughs) From NYPD Blue, right? That's what we're talking about? No, no, that's Dennis Franz. Oh, Dennis Dennis Farina. Dennis Farina. Yeah, Dennis Farina was in Get Shorty. Oh, yeah, he was yeah. the original Jack Crawford in yes. uh, Red Dragon. And he famously got snubbed from the death montage of the Oscars to the point where people will say, this person got farina wow. when they get left out of the, mustache, the montage. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. oh, yeah. Gotcha. Famous okay. mustache. Crime story. He's I think the bad guy was his big in, thing. Um, I can't remember. Night Run as well. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, Dennis Farina was originally a Chicago police officer. He worked 19 years on the Chicago police force. And he quit one year before he got his pension to make the move to Hollywood. (laughs) I remember reading that. Too bad it didn't turn out for him. So he was on a show that was on, I want to say it was on Bravo, called Dinner for Five with that director, John Favreau. Okay? And, And... They're sitting around. If you know the show, it was where Favreau would sit around with four actors or actresses and they'd have dinner and they just talk about the business and acting and all this stuff. So they had Farina on and and somebody asked Farina, they said, oh, here's a question. I think it might have been Favreau said, in your opinion, what was the best TV show and movie about cops? Now, I thought this was kind of funny, but he says, well, movie, he says, probably the French Connection and another film that's a little lesser known called The Seven Ups. And those were both made in the early 70s. I'm sure you guys have seen French Connection. I don't know if you've seen Seven Ups, but that's a, it's a similar film to that. It's another but, um, Roy Scheider film, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. But then he, and then he says to them, he goes, okay, now he says, I'm going to tell you what the best TV show ever about cops is. He says, and you're going to laugh, but it's the honest to God truth. And he says, Barney Miller. Yeah, no shit. Miller. 
Wow. Because it was, it, it was, you know, it was in that setting. You know, they were in that precinct house, and, you know, and, and usually your days, you know, you just kind of go along. There's really nothing. They never had guns you know, out. They never it made like that was how it was like um, Who got it totally wrong? Yeah, I don't, th- I, don't, I don't think a great majority of them really... Right. My, my biggest complaint with all of them is that they really never capture the humor that goes. Right. Uh-huh. With all, it's always... I could, nev- I could not imagine <laughs> going to work in that, in that business, in the police business, or, or in, in any business, with, with, with so much on your mind all the time. And, you know, you're always angry, and you're always, you know, it's always this, and it... You can't do it. I don't know anybody would function in any capacity. All the cops, when we were on the force, we all loved Barney Miller because they showed the mundane nature of the work and the fact that you had to deal with these same type of people constantly coming into the station. And some of them were a little cuckoo and some of them were just, you know, in trouble. Some of them were just lost. Some of that, whatever the case was, he says that was far more realistic than these shows that were like the wild, wild west. And in fact, I believe. It. Yeah. And Barney Miller got known. It got became known for being a favorite among cops. The humor that the cops share in the precinct house was similar to, you know, like Harris's uh, constant cracks about Bellevue and, and things like that, you know, a cracker factory and stuff like that. Kind of a dark, dark sense of humor about some of those things. It was a very conscious choice and decision on Danny's part. I mean, the episode more than once in the first couple of seasons, they mention that in the dialogue. They say, oh, yeah, you know, if people only knew how boring the cop, because the one was with Linda Lavin, where she's writing the reports, and typing the reports, and she's complaining about that. And I think Barbara Barry says something like, people think it's what they see on TV. There's the episode where Chano kills the guy. And it's a great episode. Right, and, and Nick says to Barney, I just watched a movie yesterday where they must have shot and killed 13 people. And they didn't blink an eye, you know, and Barney forgot what Barney says. But so they, they, they draw attention to that specifically the first few seasons a number of times that this was not your average TV cop show. I mean, I don't have friends that are cops, but I have friends that are firefighters. And I imagine that this is the same thing. The way that they tell me what their job is like is they sit around and wait for things to happen. And when you sit around and wait for things to happen, you grow close to the people that you're sitting around waiting for things to happen with. So yeah, it's not all, you know, throwing the hose into the building and putting out the fires. It's sitting around fucking waiting, just waiting and waiting and waiting. Firefighters have it a little different than cops, but cops, same idea. And why do you think firefighters are such great cooks? Cause they're sitting around making stuff, cooking while they're waiting. For exactly. <laughs> so that was, that was intentional on, on Danny Arnold's part allows for the show to go places that the show wouldn't go otherwise because i mean if the show was a you know shoot 'em up cop show you wouldn't have you know barney and luger talking in his office and then barney inviting luger to his family's christmas that you wouldn't have that in show like not, not as like much this. as i love luger here's the one thing that bothered me about the luger christmas part of it why did barney tell him tomorrow he says to him at one point when luger says why don't i just 
ride with you. And he says, no, tomorrow morning. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, I'll be there bright and early. I'm thinking, Barney, why didn't you just say dinner's at four so you can have time with your family alone in the morning? And then he calls him a softie as he leaves. Yeah. He gives him his little uh, reindeer ornament. Oh, by the way, I have to tell you something because I wasn't, al- not that I wasn't allowed, but I, it just didn't fit. The other thing I love about this episode is Jay Gerber with the Zuma go round. Now, first of all, that's a universal frustration for all of us parents who have ever had to put ridiculous toys together on Christmas Eve for our kids to come down to on Christmas morning. But the other reason I always loved this episode is I had that exact toy when I was about seven or eight years old. He called it a whirly bird. He calls it a Zuma go round, but I actually had that exact same toy. It's amazing. So, was it as unwieldy as they show it to be in the episode? Well, you know, it was an outside toy. My father bought yeah, it. So, so that's the answer. It stayed outside and it didn't move. I'll give you a hint into my background. I am the youngest of four children, and I was a late child. My mother, God bless my mother, always called me her bonus baby. And my sister went on vacation once with my uncle. My sister was eight years older than I was, but she was the closest one to me. My brothers were even older than that. She did everything with me. So she went on vacation with my uncle one summer for two weeks. My father bought me that Whirlybird or Zuma Garan, whatever you want to call it, as a way to bribe me from not flipping out when she left. And I then had that that thing in our backyard for years. We got a lot of use out of that thing. I mean, today they would probably break after two weeks. That thing lasted like 10 years, I think. And I love the fact that Wojo, it's like, for some reason, mind you, some reason just puts it together in the precinct. I thought for sure it was going to go because the guy says, oh, these instructions are in Japanese. So I thought it'd be like, hey, Nick, <laughs> take a look at this. I was kind of glad it didn't go that way. He had a story this episode, which was nice. But yeah, the story with Jack Sue was fantastic. Nobu McCarthy as um, the prostitute. Nobu McCarthy is a fantastic name. It kind of reminds me of this Japanese place around here, which I think is also Irish. It's called Osushi. Carlos O'Kelly's not a fan of these crossover restaurants that have no purpose existing. <laughs> Exactly. But uh, yeah, she was wonderful. And I love when she calls him John on the way out. And he's like, oh, it's Nick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was great. But that end scene with the two of them, you know, as of this moment, I am no you know, no longer a cop. Yeah, yeah that was great. Yeah. No, it, that it's a solid, my solid episode, I think. I like it. The real issue is it could go in some saccharine directions because it is a holiday Christmas episode, and it doesn't. And it is the lead-in to the episode of this show that literally everybody who knows about this show knows. Yeah, the quintessential Barney Miller episode is Hash, to be sure. My wife and I were just in hysterics. And then even as I'm like coming downstairs to record, I'm just like, yeah, we're going to talk about that hash episode. And then I said, has anybody seen my legs? (laughs) They're about this long. (laughs) In the book, because, and by the way, this is a ridiculously unwieldy book. I have no idea how it's going to come out when they print it, but I can tell you that the manuscript that I handed in was 700 pages. Jesus. (laughs) 
Did you write did you write a description of each episode? Not only did I write a description, but I went through various trivia for each. I hope episode. so. So the, the episode guide alone, I think is close. It's I think it's over 400 pages. But for this episode, I said said in there, I was because I was reading over today what I wrote, and I said, this is by far the most quotable Arnie Miller episode ever. I said, all I'm going to say to you is mushy, mushy, and that's it because I want you all to go watch it and, and get all the other all the other great lines from it. This episode is so popular that our theme song, the one that John Walker put together, he quotes the mushy, mushy as part of the theme. You know, yes. that's like... And I had forgotten. So when he sent it, I was just like, okay, well, that sounds like Nick's voice. And then when he starts talking about mushy, mushy in the, in the episode, I'm like, oh, okay. That's why I know this. All right. You know, all of the, all of the, as a, you know, as someone who enjoys hash as much as the next person, I do appreciate all of the weed jokes. <laughs> but I think my favorite part of this episode is Janusz Mikowski and Zbigniew Skola, which is like, the funniest, smartest thing to do is just bring in two Polish guys and have them riff off of one another while you have Wojciechowicz in the background just being like, oh, I'm not the only one this time. And to reuse the joke of you spell it just like how it sounds. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And I love when he says they're in the cage and he says something like, this is very Chekhovian. And the other guy says, no, more intense. <laughs> Look at Welcome by Cotter was not writing jokes like that, okay? In Chekhovy and most people, you know, how many people watching primetime TV in 1976 even got the reference, you know? So it was, I mean, there's is a perfect episode. Yeah. And I agree, I agree, who was it, Chris, who said at the beginning of this? I loved, I mean, I loved and also felt terrible for Fish when he says it's the best I've 20 years and it's illegal. By the way, the guy who wrote this episode was named Tom Reader, and I was able to talk to him as well. The show was originally entitled Pot, and it was originally supposed to be Pot Brownies, and somebody, and he said, he goes, I can't remember if it was Riney or Tony. He said, somebody said to me, you know, in order for the stuff to work this fast, it should be hash, because... Yeah, it has to be hash because he said the pot wouldn't work that quickly. Takes an, it takes a half an hour for edibles right. to kick in. So it was changed, but it was it was originally supposed original title of the episode was pot, and then they had to change it to to hash for that technical. That the question is, how did anyone know the answer to that question? I'm sure no one on <laughs> staff had any right, experience. Exactly. With drugs. That's, that's right. Point, yeah. Straight edge, straight edge set that was Barney yeah. Miller. I was so happy that the episode starts with Ed Peck <laughs> coming in as the uh, plain clothes man, and you know he and uh, Fish had gone to school together. Of course, for me, Ed Peck is always going to be police officer or army Kirk, major yes! Kirk from yes, from Happy Days. I wrote down so Officer was, Kirk. That's how I think of him. Yep. Yeah, well, that voice, <laughs> that voice is amazing. Hey, she's some lady, isn't she? Get away from my wife, sir. Now, Chris, you've—I've listened to this podcast, and I always, whenever I hear you, I always think of my children because you're because you react. I'm assuming you're in your twenties, would be my guess. 
I appreciate the compliment, but I am not in my twenties. Oh. I am thirty-one. Oh. He presents very young. I am fifty-four. Yeah. I am fifty-four. <laughs> well, thirty. Yeah, I have reverse Jack. I have reverse Jack syndrome. Thirty-one. I started old, and I'm getting at thirty-one. You're still old enough to be one of my children. Correct. Would assume or, so. Correct. I should say I'm old enough to be. Exactly. I'm friends with a lot of people who are old enough to be my father, and not only not only is that funny, the ones who always like to tell me that always go, why do you keep bringing this up? Do you want me to be your son? <laughs> I'm very confused no, no, here. No, please, I can't afford it anymore. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. You're good. You're probably going to talk about the relationship that Fish has with Bernice and how Chris is just like, why are you still married to her? Exactly. You get to see how how he really feels. But what I was starting to say is because I've heard Chris use this word and my kids use it all the time is creepy. And, you know, where he keeps saying, oh, she fits just right. You know, I'm like, okay, calm down, man. Like, why would you be saying this to a guy you haven't seen in 25, 30 years? I would say it goes as far as to being like sexually aggressive. Yes. I, and towards his wife. Like, what or no? Like, not bad idea. Well, maybe he thought this was like, what was that, Franklin Graham? Like, one of those type of situations where, like, you know, fish is going to watch. Well, fish, is a, those... fish is a cuck. <laughs> cuck fish. fish. Yeah, the cuck yeah, fish. Fish yeah. doesn't strike me as. How much of a cuck, I would think. No, no, I don't think so. Now, the only other thing I want to mention to you guys for this episode, because I, I maybe you already do know this, but Jack Sue, his first major thing he did before this was he was in Flower Drum Song on Broadway and also later in the movie as well. And when he was a nightclub entertainer, he was actually, and I can't remember the name of it, I want to say it was Charlie Lau's Forbidden City or something like that. There was a famous nightclub in San Francisco, which was the, which was what they based the nightclub on in the film in the, in Flower Drum Song in the in the Broadway show that was based on this actual nightclub that had been in San Francisco. And the guy who ran that nightclub had a penchant for promoting his talent in there as like the Chinese Bob Hope or the Chinese oh Milton Berle or something like that, you know? And he, he promoted Jack Sue way back in the day as the Chinese Bing Crosby because he was a singer. And clearly Chinese. Well, and you know why he took that name, right? Yeah. Because of uh, the internment camps. Exactly, because of the well, yeah, anti That's why they're not going to bill him as a Japanese actor. No way, no how. And if you were German at the time, they would bill you what? as French? Yeah, instead of Mueller, they called you Miller. And in fact, I can't remember if I saw this on the documentary about Sue or if Hal Linden told me this. But apparently, when he did the Broadway show for Flower Drum Song, he wanted to go back to his original name, which was Goro Suzuki. And the producer said, we can't let you do it because this the show is supposed to be in this Chinese nightclub. It's a Chinese family. It's a Chinese story. And we already have the two lead women who are Japanese. <laughs> so we need to play down the Japanese part. We need you to keep the name Jack Sue. 
So that might have been the time in his life where he might have changed names and didn't. But it's also why when he did Barney Miller, he wanted to make sure his character was Japanese because he was proud of being Japanese. And he was a little sorry that he got, you know, he had to stay with that name that he had, that it was a Chinese name. I would be proud of being Japanese, too, if I was put in an internment camp by the country that I lived in for being said Japanese. I, too, would be very proud of my Japanese heritage. So, yeah. So it was it was. And, you know, Hal Linden and Max Gale, you know, both said to me, Jack was a really incredible guy because he never betrayed any sense of bitterness about that. You know, he just went on. He wanted to make people laugh. He wanted to make people happy. He was grateful for, you know, the career he had. But he says, you know, obviously it had to have had affected him. You know, when he got into the internment camps, he he kind of rallied the people in the camps to start putting on shows for themselves. And that's eventually how he he became so like, you know, for lack of a better term, I don't like to use this because it's a prison term, but he kind of became a trustee and they trusted him so much that they started letting him go out and taking a troop of them out to entertain people outside of the camps. And then, of course, he eventually, they allowed him to, now you want to talk about irony, Chris, that I know will really drive you crazy, but eventually he was able to leave the camp. Why? Because they put him in the army. He joined the army, which of course you see, I don't know, again, I can't keep the order of which all these episodes in, but I think we are, I think you already went through the episode where Lieutenant Scanlon comes in in that one-off as the army recruiter sergeant and he makes some comment you know to him about about the war or something like that and you know he ends up if you remember at the end of that he ends up nick ends up saying to him, i was in the war i fought for he goes for our side he's like yeah and he tells him the division and all that stuff is and in fact in another episode later on they bring in Recluse, mm. have you seen that Wait. one yet? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just talked about that Ivor one. Ivor Francis is the recluse that they pull out of mm. his home and they basically yes. murder Oh, him. yes, but the episode where they literally just murder a guy. Yes. He says, I think Ivor Francis says in that episode, I haven't been out since the war. He says, and he looks at Nick, he says, I just assumed we won. And Nick, and Nick says, we did. <laughs> it's a shame that Jack Sue passed away during the run of this show. It really is. He just is amazing in this episode. I mean, we always talk about how great Nick is, but my God, is he fantastic in this episode. It's the number one tragedy of Arnie Miller that he died when he did and couldn't finish out the series. I loved, I loved him. I mean, I mean, I love the whole show. I love everybody. I understand it. I appreciate it. But if I'm being honest, my two favorite characters in terms of laughs, in terms of for people who make me laugh most consistently, are Nick and, will you'll get to the point, Dietrich. Dietrich just killed me. I mean, it was so funny. His And his, of course, was the same thing, was that very dry delivery, dry style. The difference was with him he was this borderline genius know-it-all that drove everybody crazy eventually because he knew everything. 
Yeah, we really haven't seen him much so far this season. There was the one episode with the really hot psychiatrist, and he was talking to her about some ger- obscure German book, and she's like, oh, you've read it? And he's like, well, of course. No, we get more Ron Carey in these episodes. Yeah. He's, yeah, Ron Carey's just coming in after um, – Ron Carey was basically the replacement of sorts for Gregory Sierra. And and then Dietrich was, you know, the replacement for, for Fish when Fish leaves. Because, again, you're not seeing Dietrich a lot. You're still seeing Fish. But they already knew Fish was going because, you know, like like Chris and, and Mike, I think you said the same thing in a couple of the episodes. I mean, he is so – I mean, again, everybody said this to me. Nobody expected when this show began that Fish – was going to be the breakout character. It would be like if in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the grandpa got his own series of movies. It's like, this is not the character that anyone should be gravitating towards. And yet, because of the writing, here we are. Well, and the performance. Right. My God, well, can yeah. he just deliver so yeah. well. When you look like Boris Karloff, it's easy to always look angry. So, And let me sound like a crotchety old man yelling at the kids to get off his lawn for a moment. When I say that I don't think you'd have I don't think you'd have that character today in a show because he's an old ugly man an old ugly man who's like getting ass like constantly like his women are throwing themselves at him he is like constantly like I I convinced that he is just like a total just a he is just a player they make it seem that way whether or not he is that is one of the ways that he has written is like he's you know women are attracted to his brusque nature i have to say you said that on one of the episodes i'm listening to, i'm like wow i never thought of that i like never put that together like i know the one with the quarantine and and the hooker kind of gravitates towards him but i always thought they're basically gravitating towards him because one of two things a because he puts off this vibe that he doesn't really care about anything or anyone or more likely is b is that they feel less threatened by him because, you know, he's an old guy and what's he going to do? You know, he's got to go to the bathroom every 10 minutes for crying. And he was so, what? He was 50 when the show was on, right? You know, when the show started, he was 54. Christ. And he was only a few years <laughs> older than Hal Linden, if memory serves. Yeah, he's 10 years older. Exactly 10 years older. Yeah. Yeah. So but they already knew that's why they bring. And by the way, the other thing I have to mention, because, again, you did just mention it in one of the episodes I just listened to this week. And this was the biggest issue that my daughter had with, with this show or any of the old shows, but particularly this show, because Danny was someone who did it all the time. And that is bringing actors back to play different yeah. parts. The mole, you mean? The reality is, I'm pretty sure on one of the episodes I listened to, you guys made this point. Now we stream everything and we watch everything in right. one city. That's why we're really trying to pace ourselves out with this and not get too far ahead. And honestly, you know what it also is? Yeah, because- Your point, Otto, I think it's I think it's that, but I also think it's also people are more connected now and you could just go Google someone and be like, okay, that's who this is. Have they been on the show before? And if they show up with a different name on the show, people will find it strange. Not only was there no IMDB when I was a kid, but this was not even information that you were going to find in the library when we use library. Right. So, right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a totally, totally, I mean, it literally is. And the interesting thing for me 
watching it all over again when I was writing the book was, for example, two of my other shows that I grew up loving were the Dick Van Dyke show and the Andy Griffith show. Now, both of those shows, the creators and producers and writers consciously wrote those shows with no current event, you know, pop culture mentions in the program. Helps with syndication, huh? Go watch Dick Van Dyke. They never, ever talk about anything that's going on at the time. And and then, to my knowledge, only once did they ever do it in Andy Griffith when Opie and one of his friends talks about Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. But but they did, you know, they just never did it. So I'm going to as I'm getting ready to watch Barney again, when I start writing the book, I'm thinking how much I can't remember exactly how many times they gave away, you know, the time and culture that they were living in. And of course, they do it all the time. The election. Right. That's the that's one of the episodes. It wasn't the election one. The episode that I was listening to you, Chris, and I was kind of laughing, and that's the one. It might have been the first one I ever listened to. I didn't listen to them in order, I must admit. But it was probably the first episode that I heard, and I was yelling at you because you were were saying, like, something about the layoffs, and they just did something about layoffs. and, And I'm like, well, yeah, if you were alive at the time, New York City was a mess. I mean, they were in a financial mess, and it was everywhere in the new new york go to hell right right yeah Ford to new york drop dead and uh, and so that that issue about cutting and laying off that does come up continually because throughout the 70s that was a big issue the whole thing with scanlon i think you guys mentioned it but it definitely is there because of the film serpico and what what was happening in the news about corruption in the New York City Police Department at that point in time. All of the writers that I spoke with said, we routinely, and you can go back and find them, I mentioned some in the book, they routinely got story ideas, especially as the time went on, from newspaper articles of crimes. And they do that now. Like, uh, is it Law law and Order SVU? Law and Order is always Law and Order, and all of the other ones are very yeah, like or even like CSI. I remember when the there was the guy that got hit by the woman and he was stuck in her windshield. Yeah, and then it was like maybe a month later there was a CSI about. It. I was like, wow, that was fast. And there was a NPR article or NPR story about people that clean up at crime scenes and suddenly it was like at least three movies and two tv shows all were about people that clean up at crime scenes one of those movies was not like oscar nominated too wasn't it the one that had like amy adams in it yeah i I think you're right yeah yeah to your point Otto, it's very strange because like the last show that we did coal shack like never really mentioned current events right mike like i don't think it did you would pick up like little things here and there but it was i mean it was only 20 episodes plus the two movies so it wasn't like we were seeing right. Chicago evolve over the time and plus it was fake Chicago, Chicago. <laughs> Chicago. wasn't most of his stuff supernatural things that's true but they figured out a way to shoehorn it in because he's always covering like some sort of you know I never saw that show when it was on because 
something else was on that night that I watched over Kolchak. Then later, I got the two movies on DVD, and I love the movies. Yeah, the movies are great. I always liked Darren McGavin, too. So I'm very much, and this is the other reason why I always love Barney so much, I'm very, very much character actor person. And Barney Miller was one of the greatest shows ever for featuring these little character actors, you know, that Danny loved. And again, in in a previous show, I don't remember if it was Mike or Chris, but somebody mentioned like these were like real New York actors. Well, yes, they were. He had a real penchant for New York actors and, and, you know, the casting directors knew to look to those people first. Well, the one I wanted to call out for this one is Michael Tucci, who shows up as the the guy that jumped from one building to the other and then fucking fish jumped after him and made it. <laughs> he went like this and then the guy went like this. You know what's funny about Michael Tucci? Does that guy play another character in anything? Hey, hey, Even when the he's, guy from uh, Greece. When he's a Again. high schooler in Greece. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hey, I'm like a 40-year-old he man. It's Greece. another Barney, I think. I think he did at least one other Barney. But yes, his whole, you should have seen the old guy. He went bang, zoom, and jumped right over the thing. Three, he, does three, he does three more Barneys. Oh, Barney three, stuff. okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I knew he was. I knew he was. Oh, funny enough, he's Danny Rizzo in uh, one of the episodes. Uh, speaking of Greece, wow. maybe he's uh, Rizzo's uh, yes, brother. That's right. I mentioned that I think in the book that he used the name Rizzo. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He's a good character actor, but yeah, he always plays like the same. Hey, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey. It's like okay, it's a little much. It's fine. It's what I mean. It's what it's whatever, right? It's you hire him for that. Yeah, yeah. That's his thing. By the way, I also want to give a, a shout out in this episode to Ron Glass because his whole thing with when Barney says, "Are you okay?" He's like sharp as a tack, sharp as a tack. <laughs> so is the implication that Harris is just constantly high all the time? Because <laughs> that's the way. Well, I the way that he's like, "Well, it's this like, was hash, Barney." And he's like, "Oh, the lab." You need to nut up. All right. I, I I think it's, I mean, I think you'll agree. I think it's safe to say, and I'm sure this is an old word that isn't used anymore, but I think it's safe to say that out of that group, he was always the hippest guy in the room. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Wojo, you know, early on, Chris, I don't know if you're changing, but you were a little harsh on Wojo. And he was playing, I just said this to my son yesterday, again, you can't don't write these things intentionally anymore and you don't say them. But back in the day, you know, that was a stereotype was the dumb Polak. I mean, and that's kind of, you know, he's in Arizona. Yeah. So that was the thing. And he was supposed to be, I think a little that, but more than that, I think he was supposed to be the young, naive hot dog who was, if you if think you'll agree, for Wojo, particularly at the beginning of the series, everything is black and white to him. Or kung fu studded. By the way, freeze, freeze. just to make you feel better about that, Danny wanted him to do that. And Max Gale was like, okay, well, he goes, well, he goes, you know, just make some karate. Ta-. He goes, well, Danny, that's, he goes, you know, there's the real art to it. They do, there's, a, there's actual moves and stuff. And Max was very was much more of a method person than Danny was. So he did take a couple of lessons just to have some of the moves be more authentic. Wow. But yes. Wow. You know, 
I know you wanted, that know is, you wanted them to that carry is that amazing. through. But. <laughs> that is amazing. Lord, yeah. Max Gale's stock just jumped in my book a bunch. Just for that little bit of just like a complete waste of time. Right. Nothing. It's never referenced again. It's only ever referenced because Mike and I bring it up because it's so out of place. By the way, not matters one way or another, but Max Gale is probably the nicest human being you would ever meet. I said that not only was Danny a great judge of of acting, but he was apparently a very good judge of character because I think I spoke something like 40 or 50 people that I interviewed for the book. And almost to a person, I'd say one or two people were, you know, a little like uh, they didn't really want to be doing this, talking to me or whatever. Everyone else was so nice, so open, so down to earth and, and generous with their time. And it was really amazing. I mean, I was I was surprised. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that from everyone. Mike, you can cut this part out, but that's a shame given that we haven't spoken to anyone for our show yet. <laughs> Hal Linden won't get back to us. Max Gale, you've spoken to him, right? Matt, Mark, Mike, Mark, Mark, Mike, Mike, you've spoken to him, right? <laughs> Mark, like, whoever like I am. Yeah. Too, man. Like, I've talked with him a couple times on Messenger, and then it's funny because he was just like, oh, a friend of mine is uh, doing a book about Barney Miller. I should put you Max, in contact. you know and you were on I'm the like, show, right? <laughs> you were on the show. Yeah, and, right? like, you know, months pass. I'm just like, hey, Max, uh, do you want to talk? Do you want to put me in touch right. with your friend? And then... And then it, it wasn't because of him that I saw you and your book. It was because I'm in that same Bear Manor Media group, and I saw the post come up, and I was like, hot damn, here, here's Max's yeah. friend. Well, you know, I guess would be that if Max is reluctant at all, first of all, I mean, both, both he and Hale are amazingly active and busy for their ages. I mean, Hale is ridiculous. Hale just turned 90. And he's he you know, when I talked to him a few years back the first time I talked to him one night, it was like 1230 a.m. here because I'm in New York. He was in L.A. He was getting back from rehearsals for the Fantastics. I the Fantastics in L.A. He was like 86 or something. <laughs> or 87. Oh, I mean, he's incredible. But. But he was on an episode of Supernatural. Yeah, he's, he's done a lot of stuff, but but neither of them are are comfortable with the technology stuff either. So I I have a feeling that maybe that might be might be part of it. X has a woman who helps him now on do his Facebook page. Her name is Sue Walsh because I met her two years ago because it was. It was pre-COVID. It was the fall before COVID that there was a chiller fest in New Jersey. And I met Max and Hale there because they came to do that together. And she was there helping Max. So she she now has since started his like Facebook page and she runs it all for him because he I don't think he's a real technical. He's something of a uh, local hero around here because he, I grew up in Riverview, Michigan, and he grew up in Grozeal, which is just, you know, like a hop, skip, and a jump away, like literally 10 minutes from where I grew up. Oh, wow. Okay. So 
like it was a big deal. Like this guy from Michigan is on the show, and just like whenever he would come back to town, the news would cover it and all this kind of and stuff. So he's always been like, "It's Max Gale." Isn't you know? his sister like an important local person there? Emily, I think Gale? so. Yeah, you know, Max is a twin. That his mother had seven kids in like five or six years because she had, are you ready for this? Three sets of twins. Oh my Jesus. God. Yeah. Three sets of twins. So they were going for three kids and they ended up with seven. <laughs> tell us. That is some astronomical luck question mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people are just super predisposed to that. Like the, they just, they're, Eggs divide, or yeah, I guess it's more on and the Max woman's side. Max doesn't have any yeah. twins, but he now has Max now has twin granddaughters. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, and he's still on General Hospital. Is he still on? Is yeah. he twenty? Says twenty twenty one. If you're looking at IMDb, they with soap operas they do weird shit, and they'll do like because it's still playing, they'll right. give this current oh, this year. Said, so he could I have think been he was on, on for two ago. seasons. I believe. Yeah, it's it's very confusing. It's January fourteenth, twenty twenty one. Maybe he came back as like flashback or something. Oh, I see what he you're started talking on, about. He yeah. started on the show in twenty eighteen and has been on it since twenty eighteen. Because his character, his character died, but um, maybe he's coming back in flashback. I've been I've been told in soap operas, death is only the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> They used to have a thing in the local paper that would give you, like, synopsis of yesterday's soap opera in case you missed it. And just reading those was like, what the fuck? They were like, you know, an alien has adop- has uh, kidnapped <laughs> Emily's baby. And you're like, what? This is on, on the next episode of Times of Our Lives. <laughs> yeah. It's okay, like, spoiler oh, alert. That very thing you just described will come up in a future episode. Oh, good. <laughs> I will tell you, though, the weirdest thing about the next episode we're going to talk about, Smog Alert, seeing Abe Vigoda in a mask. Yes, thank you. Boy, that's hard to watch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, I mean, you know, I've talked about how, like, in China, people wear masks, they wear them to protect other people when they're sick, but also because of the air of quality. I know, Yeah, right? the air quality the, is horrible, right? Air quality is awful, yeah, especially in Beijing and uh, and a little bit in Shanghai, there were some days where you couldn't see the top of the Shanghai tower, just depending on like the smog level. But yeah, that was, uh, it was so weird. I'm, I'm so glad you said that, Chris, cause I was just like, wow, seeing fish in this mask really was like contemporary times. Yeah. All right, <laughs> I like what I like the opening line where he says, Oh, I'm all right. I just swallowed a chunk of smog. I think my favorite smog based joke in this episode is, <laughs> Barney goes over to the sugar and he's like, oh, nice. Someone brought in brown sugar. Good for the cholesterol. Is this brown sugar? It's now. (laughs) (laughs) And he just takes it and sticks the spoon back in and sets it back down. It's, I mean, again, the comic timing in this show is when it's impeccable, which it normally is. It is. It truly is just simplest, simplest jokes. I really liked Batista in this one with the whole thing of her just coming in right <laughs> off the street. Well, first having to sign into the board because some asshole, Levent, <laughs> has uh, moved her name up at the top. And as soon as she did that, I was like, well, I bet you that's probably Levitt. So sure <laughs> enough. But her going over the phone and immediately picking it up and 
making a date, quote unquote, with this um, the vandal who has vandalized the <laughs> women's room wall. Ah, oh, so good. I love when they bring him in and just how awful and awkward he is. And then the suicide. And I was just like, oh, man, this is going to play so well. The, the, the suicidal woman. Yeah, no, it was, I, you know, the other the other thing that I loved about about this particular episode is, again, one of, in my opinion, one of the funniest. And again, it goes back to Chris's favorite character, Fish. He said they will. He says, "No, I just got some oxygen, and then had them let me out." And Barney's like, "They're not going to let anybody out. The gun <laughs> helped. The gun helped." <laughs> I just and I just imagine him pulling his, just like opening his jacket, and being like, "You're going to let me go, right?" Like, <laughs> great. Of course, the whole thing. You're slowly now. You're going to slowly start seeing this evolution, Wojo. He's concerned about the smog and the pollution and the smoking. And it goes on and on. And, and by the end of the series, I will tell you this. The Wojo you get at the end of the series, it's much closer to Max Gale. Max, I don't know how much you know about Max personally, but he is a real... I mean, I've had, I had a bunch of the people who I spoke with said, well, Max... Everybody loved him because you can't not love him because he's such a sweet guy. But they all said Max was the hippie of the group. I just watched this documentary from, I think, 1980 about David Gopalil, the uh, famous Aboriginal actor from Australia. And it's his time when he came to the U.S. and was there, you know, for Walkabout. I think it's called Walkabout in Hollywood. And he's trying to get this movie made. And it's him and the director of the documentary were trying to get it made. And they stop by Max Gale's house and they're talking with these Native Americans that are there. And like Gale is just kind of in the background, but it's like, Gopalil and these Native Americans are basically like exchanging cultures and stuff. And I'm just like, was that, I talked to with the director, I was like, that was Max Gale's house, right? That was Max Gale. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, Max was really like into this stuff and like Native American rights and all this. I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, I knew he was more like super liberal, but it's hilarious how uptight and like that straight edge uh, Marine that he is on the show versus who the real Max Gale is. No, my daughter just said to me this week, she says, Dad, did you see, she goes, Max Gale on his page. I saw that he was friends with so-and-so. I said, Jen, Max Gale has known and more, more likely than not been friends with every major indigenous leader in America in the last 50 years. He's known them all. He, in fact, he's told me, you know, when he started the show, initially didn't even want to sign on because he didn't want to commit that long to a show. You know, he didn't realize that not very few shows go eight seasons anyway, but after he had been doing it for a while, a couple, about two seasons or three seasons, he bought a piece of land in Malibu when it was still possible, I guess, to buy a piece of land in Malibu, but there was no house on it. So he had to build a house in the interim or I think maybe there was a house on it, but it was like in such terrible shape, it needed to be redone. He put up a teepee in his backyard and lived in that teepee for a year or so. Okay. So that's, that's Max. I mean, and he's known everybody from Leonard Pelletier to Dennis Banks and all those guys. I mean, he's, 
Buffy St. Marie, he's very close with. Well, his production company does all kinds of documentaries about social and humanitarian and environmental issues, right? Very much so. Yeah, that's that. Good. Good for him. That's Max. That's Max Gale. Well, and he had a BA in economics and a master's in international finance, so. And compare that to Wojciechowicz, the kind of dumb Polish guy who gets all bent out of shape when the guy's wearing an American flag on his pants, you know? Or asking how characters can, or how men can be attracted to other men. Right, exactly. How could that be, Barney? (laughs) So confused by homosexuality. I have to tell you that, again, being the old man, I am, I mean, for the most part, I lean very much towards the left. That is my nature of my politics is very leftist. But, but you know, as an old guy, I'm like, you know, I believe go along with much of the political correctness and much of the changes. Some of it, I think, can be taken too far in the sense that you need to contextualize right. something. In oh, the, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, um, though we were accused of trying to cancel Kolchak. Uh, we're, it's <laughs> true. We did try to get Kolchak canceled because we just happened to mention that Kolchak treats all the female characters on the show like garbage. But No, but I have to say the one thing that – the one episode that always pissed me off was the Gabe Dell episode with the guy who was the cross-dresser. Oh, we, we talked about it as much as I really felt comfortable talking about it because we had. Yes, I know you talked. I know you were pissed. And that was one time where I totally understood and agreed with your pissed offness because I was the same way. And and, you know, I'm I'm not that that's, you know, none of us, problem. none of us cross dress. Let's just get it out in the open. I mean, we are a pro right. cross dressing show. And we <laughs> we support everything. yeah we support crosses prostitution is absolutely fine gay Not marriage cross- gay rights anything Mike and I lean Mike and I lean pretty far to the left I'm the lefty loon yeah when Chris said on one of the shows I was listening to the other day we're pro sex workers on this show I thought to myself my daughter would be yelling at you because she would tell you that most sex workers exploited and they don't do it because they want to sure. do it they do it because. Right. So, well, we we abide by sex work as real work, and you know you should get paid an honest wage for an honest work. I think it should be legalized, and you should get paid a good good wage. And I'm daughter, sure your daughter would agree with me in the idea that the reason it goes on like that is because it is illegal. That is one of the giant reasons that pushes it to be the way it is is because it's illegal. Again, I've said that for years about that, as well as drugs and things like that. I'm like. Yeah, right there, right there with you. We are very pro hash brownies on this program. Which was that episode? Do you do we remember what episode that was? I think it's season two, right? It doesn't come up in any of the art, the episode explanation, like the synopses on IMDb. It's the guy who played him was a guy named Gabe Dell, who was one of the original dead end kids in the movie in uh, the Bogart film. Okay, so it was Vigilante. Oh, no, it was season one, episode nine. Okay. Yep. Wojo arresting cross-dressing teamster. But what's funny is that later on, and again, this goes back to the fact that, again, they they weren't thinking ahead on any of these. You know, they were writing episode to episode. Because later on, in some episode, Barney says something to someone like, well, we can't just arrest somebody for how they dress or something like that. And I remember saying to the screen, I'm talking to the screen, like, well, actually, you did arrest somebody for how they dressed. 
in the very first. Yeah, so it was the first season. So yeah, there are, again, there are those problematic things. In terms of the gay issue, I will say this, and again, you know, Chris, I know you, you've said on the program you're gay, so you have more, more what's the word, bona fides than I do in this area. But I think for the time, Marty was definitely a, very much a stereotypical character. What was different, however, was that Barney, for the most part, treated him with dignity and expected Wojo. He would, he would say things to Wojo. I think he says it in that quarantine episode where Wojo gets all worked up because the two guys want to sleep in the cots next to one another. And, Wojo, and Barney says to Wojo, these are our guests. While they are here, we will make them as comfortable as possible. It's weird. Some of that actually shifts over to Luger. So Luger becomes the more like... Um, Homophobic Yeah, the, the, the more Archie Bunker of the group. Even though yeah. I'm convinced right. Luger is a gay character, but that's just... Right. <laughs> I, no. I don't... Whatever they told you down at the Delicatessen, don't... Uh, you know, I love how he always does that. Like, like somebody like brings up something, he's just like, oh no, whatever you heard is wrong. <laughs> it was always the cashier in Bensonhurst or Brooklyn. That's right, that's right. Later on, I don't think we've seen him yet. You will get another gay character who is a police officer. Didn't we have a gay police officer? You had a gay one in in one one of the episodes with Marty and Mister Driscoll is where they were getting taken advantage of in that bar or something. Right, right. So, yeah. They were getting shaken down, and, you know, and coming the guy, out of the gay bar. Yeah, and then the co- one of the cops like, is gay, right? Right, the cop yeah. is gay, and and Wojo's like. You know, cops can be gay. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, later on, there is a gay cop in the 12th precinct and he's in, in no way stereotype at all. And in fact, I don't know. Have you? No, I think it comes later. I think it comes in season five where Marty and Mr. Driscoll come back. Mr. Driscoll has a son and it's very interesting episode because in that episode, Driscoll is, for lack of a better term, and I don't, forgive me, I don't know if I'm even supposed to say this, but he said this to me, the actor said it to me, and I believe, the, I know the actor who is gay, he said to me, they butched me up. <laughs> oh, man. Um, don't be as gay as you normally are. And he, and he said to me, the guy's name's Ray Stewart, super nice guy, he said to me, he goes, I kind of liked the opportunity to play a little against character, you know, different kind of take on it because he's, he's upset that his wife is not allowing him the access he's supposed to have to his son. Oh, that's interesting. So it's kind of gay rights all the way back then. Yeah. I found that last appearance of them very interesting with that whole, like, well, we can go to California and they treat us differently there. And I was like, so in, in its ways, I mean, I'm sure there was some of it is problematic, but some of it I think was, ahead of its time progressively, um, particularly with the cop whose name is Zatelli. So you'll recognize him when, when he comes on. He's a uniformed cop from downstairs, officers. He does, life doesn't fit tight. Boy, I talked to him, the character who play, the uh, actor who played him. He was a real character in real life, too. His name is Dino Natali. And 
he's he was funny. But yeah, but it, it's here's my here's the other thing I always loved about Barney. I always was pissed off that Barney didn't get the respect as say Mash did. Mash was a show that I watched early on and loved, and then lost interest in it because it became more drama than comedy to me. And for me, the thing I loved about Barney was even when they started tackling more controversial issues, the focus was always on the funny for me. And I, and I kind of liked that. There's going to be an episode, I believe it's season five, that is, and this again came straight from the news of the day, where a woman accused her husband of rape. And of course, back then, they all thought she was crazy, which obviously today we know, well, of course, it's yeah. rape. But Spousal then, rape is a thing. Right. In fact, then, I mean, even even Dietrich, Dietrich says some somewhere in that episode, he goes, well, many states have always, how did he put it? He says, has, have always granted conjugal rights to the husband, no matter what, basically, is what he's saying. So that the wife had no say, you know, I mean, something crazy like that. And then at the end of the series, there is an episode and I talked to both Hal Linden about this episode and to the actress who was in it, where where this woman's husband, this character who's actually a, a recurring character later on in the show, yells at her and she flinches. And of course, by doing so, the only thing we can assume is that she's been hit before. And she and Hal both said, you know, it's amazing. At the time, that was played for a laugh line. Oh, boy. And that's one that really doesn't sit well anymore. And even the actress said, she goes, you know, it's, she goes, it's amazing to me. She goes, and I played it. Well, and to, to your point, Otto, you know, and look, you've mentioned this and I agree. It's it's interesting to have someone my age talking about this show, because I think a lot of people my age would overlook this show, would probably give zero fucks about the show. And look, I understand why. I think it's a little unfair. I think it's a lot unfair for a lot of reasons. But to your point of the shows I've seen from the time that are comedy, this show never it tries its best to avoid those kinds of cheap gags. It doesn't always, mind you, the thing you're talking about is going to be an example. We've already seen examples with the cross-dressing character, with the gay characters, obviously. But again, even in comparison to something like Kolshak, is better off. Kolshak would constantly disrespect women, call them dumb, not dumb broads, but... Something along those lines, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, it would be something to the, you know, dumb broad, dumb woman, whatever. But this show doesn't go to that. And, you know, I think, you know, the thing that, you know, back to Barbara Barry, the thing that always upset me about it is she always seemed like she was written as Barney's equal. And yet she's not in the show. Yeah. But she's clearly his intellectual right. and emotional equal. And that in and of itself is not something you would see at the time. She was not some dumb housewife or... She wasn't even June Cleaver. I mean, I love, I think you guys mentioned it, and I, I always got such a kick out of that show, the one where they're worried about the graft. And he says, you know, he, he was upset that the butcher, he says, you know, gave her that. And she says, well, he likes the way I walk. And he says, I've seen you walk. I, don't, I wouldn't give you free me. She says, you don't think I walk for you the way I walk for the butcher. <laughs> 
I mean, you know, that's that's a woman who is intelligent. She's she's comfortable with her sexuality and she's also comfortable with her marriage because she can make that kind of a joke and know that her husband is going to think it's funny and not, you know, not get jealous or something that you might see in a 50s or 60s sitcom. You said you were going to mention a show that would drive us crazy about the sexism. It, it's not Macmillan and Wife, is it? This makes Macmillan and Wife look so progressive you, you couldn't believe it. It was a detective show from the 1960s starring a guy named Gene Barry. Oh, yeah. Gene Barry. He was one of Columbo's first nemesis. He, he, was in the, he was in the original movie called Prescription Murder. He kills his wife. Gene Barry was on a show in the 60s for, I think it was, I think the series went three years, called Burke's Law. And he played Captain Amos Burke, Homicide Division, and I believe it was, um, yeah, it was set in L.A. He is actually a millionaire, but, but, but he wants to work, so he, he likes solving crimes, so he works as the chief of detectives in the Homicide Division. But he gets driven around by his chauffeur, who's an Asian guy, who's also his manservant. Oh, God. Driven around in this big Rolls Royce to all the crimes, and he's got a phone in the car and all this stuff. But the the way the show is constructed, the beginning of every episode is him with his newest conquest or honey of the week. And there are all these, you know, beautiful young women who are throwing themselves all over. <laughs> I found it YouTube this winter. I knew of the show, but I had never seen it because it was before my time. And I, I didn't really, I don't ever really remember seeing this one in syndication, probably because it was a black and white hour long show. But the, I watched the first couple episodes and I got hooked on watching it because Again, it had all of these great and sometimes bizarre character appearances, character actor appearances. I mean, one of the episodes had like like Hermione Gingold and Don Rickles and, I mean, just all these weird, bizarre people in it. So I started watching it. But it did get to a point where I couldn't watch opening and the epilogue are both about his sexual conquests and i just got tired i just wanted to see the the you know the solving of the crime type of stuff and of course the the language like the 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 dialogue is like super hip la in the 60s kind of like 77 sunset strip if you've ever seen that it's kind of similar to that but it's produced by spelling yeah so it is definitely a if you want to see sexism at its worst or best, depending on how you look at it. That's that's a show to watch. It'll drive you nuts. So, Otto, tell us again when the book's going to be out and what it's called. The book will be out at Thanksgiving, so the so the publisher says, and it's called Barney Miller and the Files of the Old One Two. I hope you've had a good enough time on this episode that you will agree to come back because I know I've had a great time. Chris will tell me off. Me All right, too. Good. Oh, I'll say right. it right. Well, I was going to say, Chris will tell me offline how much he just disliked this experience, but <laughs> totally. 
You know what's you know what the weirdest part about this whole thing is? Listening to Otto go, I've listened I, to He's like the one before. guy who has listened to the show. I know. This is literally mind blowing. <laughs> so then what you're saying is I'm doing myself a lot of good by talking to you guys. About the same thing, which is our love for a TV show that doesn't seem to get as much love as it deserves. If I haven't bored you guys too much, I would love to come back because, as you could probably tell, I love to talk about this show. No, we would love to check in with you when the book is coming out and then, you know, as we go go through the rest of these seasons. I mean, we'd love to get your two cents, kind of get some of the behind the scenes as well. This is great. I've listened to all these episodes now. Now I have to get caught up projection booth because... Oh, good luck with I that. I have a buddy who, I think, how did this go? Did he mention Projection Booth first? Or did I tell him I was going to be on this, found you on you on Facebook, or you found me, and I said his name is Mike White. And he's like, oh, he goes, he does a Projection Booth. I listen to that all the time. The name Mike White travels yeah. fast oh. in certain circles. <laughs> I am Mike White, not the Mike White yeah, of, it, you it know, writing and producing fame, of podcasting fame, Mike White. Keep them straight. Yeah, as I, I've requested, like when I give to uh, Kickstarter things, that they credit me now as Mike, not Ginger White. Mike, the bald one, White. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, That's we true. never That's know true. what will happen to the other Mike, Mike the White. One so, yeah. Otto, is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work online? Right now, just Facebook, but I will be starting... The publisher wants me to go on Twitter, so I'll be going on Twitter, and I'm probably going to do a website as well. So, you know, again, I'm an old guy, so I'm slow in doing all these things. I mean, the only reason I was ever on Facebook was because I host a radio show here in Rochester, and I've been doing that for 21 years. And when the young guy (laughs) came and took over about... 10 years ago, he said to all of us at the time, I want you all on Facebook. So, so he put me on <laughs> and I have done, I have used Facebook totally the way that it was never originally intentioned to be used, except a lot of family and friend requests from people who are family and friends. But I use it as, as a networking thing. I've met a lot of people like that. So, and that's how I got, I literally got some of the, interviews for the book because of facebook i have gotten interviews for a podcast that i do through linkedin i believe it see and that was the one i was supposed to be in early on they told me you got to do linkedin and i did it for a couple minutes but i you know i'm not very um i'm i'm not a very organized person (laughs) otto is truly a pleasure having you on and speaking with you this was wonderful i appreciate it i had a great time and and i'll have to start talking this up so you can get more people listening than just me i'll take well i hope so i, I hope know so. My, i know my buddy tim's gonna <laughs> but hey you know what other so, people do listen other people do listen to us no i'm sure that well i'm sure they do because you guys have like what 58 other podcasts so I'm sure they must be listening. <laughs> it's true we do have a lot of podcasts together but my my buddy dr tim madigan he i know for sure well because he kept he keeps asking me, when are you going to be on when are you going to be on so Mike, what about you? Where can people find you when you're not here talking about Barney Miller? You can find me over at the Projection Booth Podcast, as well as Dreams for Sale, which is a podcast that we do about Twilight Zone 1985, which we used to say was the only reboot worth watching. But uh, 
Maybe not season Maybe three. Maybe not so much anymore. God. What a fucking nightmare. It's getting kind of rank in there. We were... What was happening at the beginning of those episodes was I was tempting fate to turn it on us. It did. It just said, well, now you're not going to have a reason to like this anymore. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, our last episode, Chris, we had 21 downloads of the Barney Miller podcast. Yes. So we've got Otto and we've got 20 other people we need to thank. So I'm surprised that we can't thank them by name. Yeah, we can't. (laughs) Pretty soon. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Christmas Claus and at my link tree, which is at cstashu.com and at the Culture Cast, which is the movie podcast that I do, which is in no way, shape, form, or fashion as academic as the one that Mike does. But if you'd like to come hear some ding dongs talk about movies, that's probably your best bet. Let me end with a horrible, horrible pun. Chris, when you get mad, are you pish? Pistachioed? Pish, 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 Pistachioed? There you go. Pistachio. Let me just take my yeah, book are you out pistachioed? here. Insult number 551 on the nut last name. 500, you're 551 in this book. Would you like to go for 552? Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to John Walker for doing our music. And we will be back next month with another look at three episodes of the original Barney Miller show. And until then... Please make sure to rate and review the show and uh, introduce yourselves, you know, find those other 20 people and, you know, shake hands and tell yourselves you're doing a good job. We appreciate it.